And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to Rates and Barrels. It is Monday, January 24th. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris on this episode. We will discuss some players that we believe are forgotten players, uh, not necessarily players who've been like completely gone from baseball, but just players that have not been a part of our conversation throughout this draft season. The kinds of players that when you are thinking about a depth chart, you're thinking about playing time, you've probably forgotten about these guys either because of injury, recent performances, or a variety of other reasons. Sometimes we see guys that were prospects who play enough to lose prospect status and then kind of fall in between AAA and the big leagues end up in these conversations as well. So a bunch of guys that fit into one of those groups. We've got some questions from you, our loyal listeners, that we're going to get to over the course of the episode as well. Uh, you know, how's it going for you on this Monday? It's good. It's good. I didn't really do anything this weekend. Just uh, hung out, watched some movies with the kids. Just, we went, uh, did a little hike on uh, in Wunderlich Park around here. Saw some deer and newts. Newts? Newts and turkeys running around. Yeah, I'm used to seeing deer. I'm used to seeing turkeys. I don't think I've seen newts in a while. So, Yeah, this place has like a newt pond. Uh, so we were waiting for the newts to kind of stick their heads out of the algae pond. It was kind of cool. It's like a green pond, almost like a tennis court. You know, it's just a perfectly green, flat space. And Excellent. Then a little newt head would pop out. Well, the good news is there could be some more pickleball in our future because I think yeah. uh, healing has occurred in the last <laughs> week or so. <laughs> so <laughs> getting back at it, stopping and starting might be possible again uh, for for your ankle. So I think that's uh, that's a good sign. Yeah, yeah. My legs are all good. We'll figure out figure out the fainting thing later. I'm going to run a lot this week to get into extra good shape for the uh, mm. upcoming uh, pickleball rematch from a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> but let's kick it off with our forgotten players. And I mean, there's a lot of ways we can go at this. We can alternate. I think the first guy you picked, we sort of brainstormed on a group of players that we thought were eligible and then each took a group of guys that we wanted to talk about. One that you have on your list, I'll tee it up first, Justin Upton. I think he's just forgotten about because when he's healthy, even though he has the flaw of likely providing a low batting average, he's an above average source of homers and runs and RBIs. Like that is definitely something that you get with a healthy Justin Upton. And he fits into the conversation we had with Britt last week when I was saying, look, I think the Angels might have some bounce back potential that could send them into the postseason. Another part of how they get there is getting even if it's only 500 plate appearances from Justin Upton, if they have a healthy version of Upton in the mix with Mike Trout, with Brandon Marsh, and with Joe Adele, that's a great four to have as your core four in the outfield. Yeah, he's projected by most projection systems to be an above-average bat, and it's just the kind of of player uh, that uh, I think you know, real baseball and fake baseball 
uh, managers forget about, uh, which is just the, the the old veteran. Um, you know, it's not, you know, you might, you might think that he had uh, a bad season last year, but he still hit 17 home runs, uh, was slightly worse than league average with the bat. Um, and, uh, you know, I think in the right situation for a team, uh, that improves their depth around him, uh, he can be really useful. I think that, you know, for example, the Giants seem to have figured out that, um, you know, older players don't, you know, don't cost as much on the, on the free agent market, um, and can be in tandem with a good coaching staff and, uh, you know, just a, a, a kind of a, everyone has their role philosophy uh, can be very useful. So, you know, I think uh, for, you know, in the fantasies in the realm, if you're just looking for late power with a guy that will steal enough bases to not be a complete zero there, um, uh, you know, he's he's now come to the point where he's basically free. Um, and uh, not that I see anything uh, in his line that's like super compelling, other than the fact that he's kept his barrel rate uh, high all this time. Uh, of course, his uh, strikeout rate is uh, getting worse as he ages, uh, but uh, he can still hit the ball hard. He can still run okay, uh, and there's always a chance for kind of a late renaissance season at 34. And I think with Upton, compared to some of the other players we're going to talk about, he doesn't need a trade. He doesn't need something to break his way. He'll just get the chance. You know, the first guy I wanted to bring up is Miguel Andujar. Miguel Andujar needs to be traded. He needs a new start. He needs to go to a worse team that will just let him play. Defensive shortcomings aside, a lot of injuries. He was up and down last year. A little bit of time he spent in AAA. We saw a sub-10% K rate. We actually saw a double-digit walk rate for that little while. I don't know if we can put too much stock into that. I'm still stuck on 2018 when it comes to Andujar. I still believe that there's at least a a good regular hitter in there. I think part of what makes him appealing to me is that you can get good batting average from him. Like a 270, 280 batting average from him is totally possible. I think the issue, of course, without a trade, is playing time. I don't think the Yankees like him as more than a glue guy. And yeah, opportunity can open up because of the injuries that they're often dealing with, but they also could be looking for an upgrade. And I think and Duhar is the kind of player that could be bundled in a package to get the upgrade that they actually need. And a team like Oakland, among others, would absolutely have the capacity to find a spot that Duhar could call his own. Yeah, I like also the fact that, um, you know, if the National League DH is an inevitability, uh, you have more teams that could leap at the chance. I'm thinking of maybe the Padres. Uh, who currently have Jerks and Profar uh, atop their DH heap, uh, and heap, I believe, is the right word. Marlins, uh, perhaps. Uh, I could see uh, hmm, the Phillies, maybe, uh, wanting to add uh, some thump to their DH position. Um, and then there's always a chance that a team like the Pirates or Cubs, uh, that you know the Cubs took... Clint Frazier off their hands and there you know there might be a team that um, is willing to give them something small uh, to uh, to just rehab that uh, rehab Andujar as a as a possible you know flip for the future so someone like the Pirates you know could always uh, you know employ Andujar for a year or two uh, and and trade him along after giving him a chance to to rehab his uh, his you know his value on the market really. 
Yeah, I think the other couple little things I like in the profile, we still saw a max exit velocity in the 72nd percentile last year. So that's good enough raw power to pop 20 homers, I think, in any park with the playing time. He's not a bad runner, 64th percentile and sprint speed. So not a not a clogger on the base paths, even if he's not necessarily going to offer us anything in the stolen base category. And I think one thing I used to get fixated on with players who have a profile like the one Duhar has is I would get too stuck on the low OBP and not really connect enough with where that batting average is likely to be for his career. Parts of five seasons now, he's a 278 hitter with a 309 OBP. There is a real life flaw there. I am fully acknowledging that, but most of the leagues we play in are not OBP leagues. And I think he does own the skill of being a sub 20% K rate guy at the big league level who makes enough hard contact to where I can actually bank on that as a real skill. Yeah, I think one of the reasons that nobody's really beating down his door is that uh, his barrel rate has been pretty uh, lackluster for his whole career. And he probably overperformed his barrel rate in 2018 when he hit 27 homers. He only had a 6% barrel rate. So I think a, as a true talent guy outside of New York, which you know helps augment power, uh, kind of think he's probably like a 270 hitter that can hit you 18 to 20 homers. However... Uh, that's more than some teams have at the weight, especially in the NL, uh, when it comes to their DH spot. So could be some movement there. Um, or he ends up being a guy, uh, who ends up, uh, getting DFA'd for a roster spot and, and, and that's how he ends up on the pirates, you know? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there are multiple paths. I threw the 2018 spray chart up on the screen. I think it it does point to what you were suggesting, that he probably uh, outperformed his barrel rate in that great year. So that's why I'm not expecting high 20s power. If he goes somewhere else, he's put him into a, a less hitter-friendly environment, more of a neutral environment. That's where I'm getting that 20 from. Almost all of those home runs coming to the pull side, a few into the short porch and right. He's a right-handed hitter. Teams can't shift him. And like I said, he's not a bad runner. But there are... Some limitations that you want to account for. <laughs> Looking at this chart, I'm like, if they if they put him on waivers right now, I'm pretty sure the Giants would claim him. <laughs> the Giants uh, ballpark is a tough one. However, if you're a righty with pull power like that, uh, you can poke him out a lot easier than uh, than lefties. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if something like that happened. But uh, the name that inspired this whole segment, I thought you would start there. Mm-hmm. I didn't didn't feel like it. I don't know why. I think it's because I I realized that when we were talking about the Angels last week that I completely forgot about this guy. <laughs> yeah, well, and, he, then. <laughs> and he would have supported my argument perfectly because he's 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 someone we like. It's Griffin Canning. We had a question about Griffin Canning. The reason we didn't get to him is because there was a question that we were trying to get to. We ran out of time. So Casey chimed in on our YouTube page, which is a great way to ask questions, by the way. Ask questions under this video if you're watching us on YouTube. We'll get to those on a future episode. He was looking at all the skills, the stuff plus, location plus, all the things that we we look at for a pitcher, and everything kind of looks pretty close to average for Griffin Canning in that regard. But as Casey pointed it out, a really high home run rate, uh, an elevated walk rate, 10.1% as well. We talk about home run rate a lot, and we say it's one of those things that when it gets extremely bad like that, you can even if the player has legitimate home run problems, you can bank on some regression toward a more normal level than two homers per nine. But the question that Casey was was driving at was with the arsenal that Canning has, it's a good changeup and a good slider in particular. 
how can he have a walk rate that high when his location numbers aren't that bad? And like, what does he need to change in order to like make the most out of the arsenal? One theory that Casey put out there was that you know he has this great slider, and eight out of every ten of those sliders might be great pitches, but the other two miss so badly that they get punished, and that's a huge part of why there's a home run issue, even though most of the time it's a great pitch. So I was curious if you think that that sort of of thinking might be an indicator of, of what's really going on with a guy who on the surface looks like he should be probably like a number three or number four starter type that the Angels could desperately use. Yeah, the homers and the power that he's given up have mostly come off the four seam. He's given up 20 homers on the four seam, a 283 ISO, slider a 172 ISO. Uh, you know, that's that's not great for a slider either. There is some sort of power thing. Uh, there is some sort of, you know, he's allowing powerful contact. It doesn't really show up in the pitching plus model because the location plus on the slider is 109. Uh, the location plus on the four seam is 95. So, you know, maybe he's uh, struggles to locate the four seam. Um, and I just don't think that's necessarily a, uh, in this case, it's not like Henry Rodriguez. <laughs> I mean, it's not like, uh, it's not such a thing. It's not such a bad thing. He, he like he could overcome this, right? It could, like 95 to hundred. I feel like, uh, perhaps better coaching, uh, better preparation for the game, for the game, better, uh, uh, better ideas of where he can miss with the four seam. Um, you know, all those things could improve, uh, his location plus on the, on the four seam. And then I would see a totally viable, uh, pitcher because, He's above average stuff on the changeup, above average stuff on the slider, and uh, and average stuff on the four seam. So, I mean, it's a guy that has a three-pitch mix. He has a chance. Uh, maybe slightly better uh, peripheral health leads to better locations. Maybe better, you know, game day coaching, game day prep leads to better locations. Um, you know, if he goes back to like a 1.2, 1.3 homer per nine like he had his first two years, he will be very, very good. And he'll be better than his projections, and he'll have probably a high three ZRA. Um, so all those things, uh, I think, are interesting to me. The one thing that does stand out is none of his uh, pitches are uh, really good by Stuff Plus. They're all like 102, 104, you know, 100, such sort of deal. So maybe what he's really missing is an out pitch. But when I see that slider, I, I see what could be an out pitch. Um, and... Late in the season last year, his last five starts, both breaking balls were greatly improved. Um, and so I just, I think health, I think health is really the thing that kind of will bring this all together. Yeah, I was looking at the career splits with the Fangraphs uh, splits tool just to see like how much of the issue might be against lefties. I think it's really, it's really not just that. He had a reverse split in 2021, which for a oh. year doesn't necessarily mean anything. Slider has that 280 ISO against lefties. That's interesting. Yeah, so Some it's, of it. it's kind of a mixed bag. It's not just a lefty problem from what I can right. tell looking at some of these, these surface numbers. Um, but yeah, I mean, better game day strategy could be a part of it. Uh, I, I'm just thinking about a full season of Rendon at third, too. Maybe that slightly mm. helps uh, just this pitching staff as a whole not have so many guys that underperform expectations uh, with with ratios not that he's a ground ball machine or anything like that but uh, definitely a guy that fits our criteria for someone we forgot about definitely someone who is still interesting at the price i think everybody we're going to talk about in this block of players 
is usually available outside the top 500 overall in drafts for the most part. So you're getting guys really late. We're talking about guys that in a deeper mixed league might not even be drafted for leagues that have in-season moves. They might be people that you're putting on the watch list thinking about picking up early in the season if things break their way. I would say Upton might be the most shallow league relevant player of all the players we're, we're talking about so far. I literally got Canning in my last DC uh, draft and hold, and I got him in the 42nd round. So uh, the only starting pitchers I took after him were Corbin Martin, Alec Mills, and Miguel Yahure. So that's the he's definitely someone who can be part of your your back end uh, DC strategy. I think real real late. Uh, I think you had another we had another pitcher we wanted to talk about in this section. There's only two pitchers that made this part of the the show, which is a bit surprising for us. But we also have pitcher week coming up in a few weeks mm-hmm. when we'll unearth a whole bunch of of pitchers that no one wants to think about. The other name that came into my mind recently is Tyler Beatty, and I think it's because I saw our friend Nick Pollock uh, tweeting about Beatty as his sleeper pitcher for 2022. And there's one really odd thing about Beatty in particular that makes me really buy into that narrative. It's just that the Giants seem to have a way of, of taking guys coming off injury, getting them back to where they need to be to be effective. Uh, we're talking about a four pitch starter, pretty good velocity. Obviously, has shown little flashes in the past of maybe having another level that he can reach. So, in the parts of three seasons in which we have seen Beatty at the big league level, you know, has he shown enough to make you believe at a price of almost zero that you should be taking a flyer? <laughs> it's actually hard looking at the model. It's kind of hard to. Uh... To, to really evaluate him because uh, he threw eight curveballs last year in this in this uh, that were registered in this and he had a location plus of 13 on them I've never seen that and there's a, there's a little graph that shows like all curveballs and his curveball is uh, the one with the worst location plus last year <laughs> um, so but it was eight of them and uh, you know I don't I don't want to put <laughs> I'm not putting a lot of value on that I will just say that his four seam doesn't have ideal shape so um, I don't know. I don't know how how much I'm buying into it. Um, uh, I would like to see what health can bring. He's had really real glimpses. Um, and also, it's kind of weird. It's not that much of a crazy thing to say that maybe he has a 13 location plus on a pitch because uh, he has really poor command. Um, but, um, you know, one of the things that's interesting about injury and, and, and it confounds uh, research about uh, the effect of Tommy John injury and stuff like that is that um, uh, sometimes like when a, when a ligament goes, it doesn't necessarily go like people have this idea of like snap pop or I felt it go or whatever. Um and then we also, I don't think it necessarily does that for everyone. And then we also know uh, that there are pitchers that are pitching with partially torn UCLs all the time, you know, like Masahiro Tanaka and uh, I don't know, there's various other examples. So um, I have this feeling that sometimes a major surgery can fix something that had been ailing and then can actually improve uh, someone's command uh, in the long term because they had been actually pitching through pain. 
and they'd been making either small adjustments to to do that uh, that weren't that weren't great for their command, um, or they just weren't able to to fully execute their pitches like they needed to. So, you know, uh, B is not my favorite uh, sleeper, uh, but I mean he throws the ball hard. Uh, he has uh, three viable pitches, and um, maybe now we get to see him fully healthy for the first time ever in the big leagues. So. That, that that seems worth uh, paying attention to, for sure. And we saw him back in, in 2019, mostly, and it was a 375 ERA, 119 whip at home at Oracle Park, and almost 10 Ks per nine with a, a good walk rate. Had a bit of a home run issue even then, because there is a propensity to do allow some hard contact. But at a bare minimum, at that price, a home streamer on a team that is good in a mm. pitcher-friendly park, that ticks enough boxes. And I think if the season started right now, We'd be talking about BD as probably the front runner to be their number five starter. So I think there is a, a good path for him to at least get that opportunity. Maybe an on again, off again sort of guy for 12 team leagues and things more shallow. But I think in draft and hold, especially, probably a bit of an undervalued pitcher at this point. And even if you think Sammy Long is ahead of him, which, you know, I kind of think so, uh, Long went, for example, where is he? Come on. Look at this huge board. Long went in the 37th round. Oh, and Beatty went in the 37th, too. That's crazy. I would have thought that you could wait three or four more rounds after long. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So I've got the next guy I want to ask you about, Edwin Rios. If you wouldn't have put him in your group of players for today, he would have been in mine because the the stat cast numbers have always been good. Uh, I think people liked him going into it would have been last season just because of the, the possible uh, spare plate appearances he could pick up moving around a couple spots for the Dodgers. Uh, so what is it about Edwin Rios that gets you excited about him as a late flyer? I just love barrel rate, man. <laughs> it's just got a really good barrel rate. Uh, I know the strikeout rate isn't good, but when he's going well, he he adds walks. So um, he you know he could be a guy who hits 230 but has a 320 OBP uh, and a really good slugging percentage uh, next year. Um, and then it's a bit of an NLDH play as well. Um, but uh, I will say that over time, the Los Angeles uh, Dodgers depth has been tested and. Um, hasn't necessarily come up as it has in the past. So I think there's an opportunity here when you look at a depth chart where Luke Rayleigh is, um, you know, the primary backup outfielder other than, than Chris Taylor. Um, Chris Taylor is now the backup, the primary backup at third, second, center, left, and uh, I guess they'd, 
they didn't want to also put him on right. <laughs> so Taylor is like getting pretty stretched here. Uh, so Rios now only has to beat out Luke Rayleigh and Matt Beatty, uh, even without the NLDH, right? He just needs to be he needs to come to camp and and show that he's better than Luke Rayleigh uh, in right field or Matt Beatty as a backup first baseman. And the backup first baseman for the Dodgers gets some play. Because if Max Muncy goes down with this UCL injury and he actually has surgery, uh, then you uh, then you need a, an everyday first baseman. Even if Max Muncy gets healthy, he plays second a fair amount, uh, and that would open up some time for Rios at first. So uh, you're talking about a guy who barrels the ball really well, who is like a player and a half away from uh, significant time on the depth chart, right? I mean, yeah, I, I mean... Career 28.6% K rate, but a 10.1% walk rate. With the damage he does when he connects, you can accept the whiff in the profile. And it's possible that as a part-time guy, he hasn't really found that actual baseline yet. We know it's Mm -hmm. harder for part-time guys to to really settle in and and get that K rate where it should be over over a longer stretch of playing time. So yeah, I'm, I'm with you on Rios. No... No issues there. I'm going to keep taking guys who uh, don't necessarily barrel the ball as much as we'd like them to because I, I'm really smart. Uh, Josh Naylor, I, I think, is a guy that I still can't give up on. And he's not like in Victor Robles territory because expectations have never been that high. But why not first base in Cleveland? Like Why uh-huh. why mess with Bobby Bradley? Like For, for years during his time as a prospect in Miami when he broke in in San Diego, for one reason or another, depth chart crowding has... has pushed Naylor into the outfield he's a first baseman Cleveland needs a first baseman and he's still actually young because he got into the big league so quickly I think Josh Naylor will turn 25 this spring so we had a good max exit velocity number even though we're not getting great barrel rates he's a better barreler uh, than Miguel Andujar we were talking about earlier has the low K rate that we like at least a big sign platoon role seems very doable for him in Cleveland because they don't like to spend money, and Josh Naylor is cheap. So uh, am I right to still have some interest in Naylor, who has been slowed down by injuries yet again here in 2021? I, I like it, and I you know, I think the, the, the most difficult thing, you just heard me you know, go all barrel with Edwin Rios despite the strikeout rate. Um, the difficult thing is like how you, how you val- value the hard hard to hit the hard contact you value it by uh batted ball event uh, in which case uh, Naylor uh you know uh, Bradley's way out in front with a 15% barrel rate uh, uh based on on batted ball events um but you know if you do it by plate appearances it kind of gets closer uh, 328 plate appearances and uh 20 seven and he's got five uh 633 plate appearances and 29 so they basically have the same amount of barrels um you know Naylor has uh 300 more plate appearances but it kind of goes to that point where like Naylor's going to keep putting the ball in play um and it's not that he's it's completely powerless but it's a little bit more of that like yonder alonzo uh profile Mm -hmm. like the pre-30 home run yonder alonzo profile um and, uh, you know, Cleveland keeps making these bets on these guys that make a lot of contact, some of it slightly hard, and then hoping that they can help them sort of unlock uh, another level of power. You think about it. They did it, I think, with Harold Ramirez. They did it with Cesar Hernandez. They actually did it with those two players. Uh, they did it, I think, with Jose Ramirez and, and Francisco Lindor as well. 
So they there's some there's some track record there. Um, and uh, I took I took Naylor in in my uh, in my DC recently where uh, I didn't want to spend uh, like a four or five round premium on some of that we talked about this like I didn't want to pay uh, get um, Jake Cronenworth like four or five rounds earlier than my auction value said uh, just because he had multiple positions so I ended up finding players that would add positions later I got Galebra Torres he's gonna probably add second base um, I got Nico Horner who's going to add uh, shortstop and maybe third base. I got Taylor Walls who's going to add third base. Uh, and I got Josh Naylor uh, who I think will add first base eligibility. And I think he will push Bradley because Bradley and Naylor, they're both guys um, that are, I would say, borderline uh, for first base. They're both guys who are projected uh, to be league average or worse. And Naylor's projections are actually better across the board because of his ability to make contact. So um, I think that one is going to be a battle, and Naylor might win it. Yeah, Naylor, uh, 25 in June, just to confirm what I was saying earlier. Still pretty young for a guy that's had a decent amount of time in the big leagues, but it's been up and down. And that includes the the first pandemic year. I mean, we're talking about only 633 career plate appearances so far. He's popped 16 home runs. Even in those circumstances, it, it's only a little bit below league average. Eh, it's a little more than that. It's about 87 WRC plus so far. The projections do like him, though. And the projections for Bradley are for 95 WRC plus. So they're they're right there with each other. It's a different package. It's a different way to get there. But they're about the same. <laughs> What's well, really interesting, too, you, you mentioned before that Max EV is probably just like a, a data point that can give us an idea of, of a player's raw power potential, right? And game mm-hmm. power and raw power, clearly not the same thing. And it's interesting that Naylor is one of those guys whose max EV numbers look just like Bobby Bradley's, but mm-hmm. the in-game power output has lagged behind that sort of ceiling to this point. And that fits his scouting report. Look at that. Fangraph's 70-70 uh, raw power, forty-five sixty game power. Right. So I, I guess it's still wondering... Is he capable of reaching that level? I would say we haven't seen enough to say he can't. To say that he can't. Like that's right, that's yeah. why I'm interested. And Cleveland being Cleveland, especially, I just think there's a great chance. And if you said which profile do you want to take the chance on, I'm much more interested in the guy that strikes out under 20 percent of the time. Even though we we're seeing Bradley get to that power more often in games, I think it's more likely that Naylor adds game power than. But it is that Bradley reduces swing and miss, given what we've seen from them so far. Yeah, the strikeout rate is here to stay. I think with Bradley, I mean, he's kind of shown that at every level. So I, I got him. I got him in the 39th. So he's 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 a late pick that you can pick up. And then what I've also noticed um, is that first base is kind of tough when you start getting like my rule of thumb in DCs is I'm trying to have four of every position, and I'll count them if it's multi eligibility. You know, like I'll count them. You, it'll end up being more than I have players, you know what I mean? But I want to have four eligible players at every position, and I had a, a hard time with first base. Um, you know, I even drafted fairly uh, early with Walsh. I got Jared Walsh and Frank Schwindel uh, in the first 20 rounds, um, you know, later than other people got their first base. But then I, I took too long, and I had to get Lewin, D- Lewin Diaz in the 35th. Uh, just to get a guy. And then my fourth guy, I don't actually have one. It's Naylor. So I would say watch out for first base people. And if you get stuck like I did, Naylor is at least uh, a way to kind of 
say maybe I'll get a fourth eligible guy in season. Um, and and first base outfield is a actually I think a pretty powerful uh, combination. Um, so uh, you know that that's a good double to have. I think I I also noticed that they're all doubles are not the same. You know I got uh, Torres and uh, you know I got guys that had second base and short. Like I had Brandon Rogers and Torres and stuff. There's a lot of those. There's like a fair amount of those. And so it doesn't add that much value, you know? And uh, so I ended up with like five or six second baseman and shortstops, but they're like the same three players. You know? <laughs> so, same profile on repeat. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I think that first base out, outfield is, is one of those profiles. It's uh, that's uh, in that, in that same draft, I had a, a you know, I got about like 80 steals doing my like, I'm not going to pay for steals thing. And I realized I had like one starting spot left. And I was like, well, 80 is not enough. And I only have one starting spot left. So I ended up just taking shot after shot on late speed. So <laughs> my like bench outfield in that league is uh, Videl Brujan, Victor Robles for you. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, uh, Aaron Hicks um, and uh, and Christian Pache. In fact, uh, the the next two names on mine, I'll just double tap. Uh, yeah, for the sake of comparison, but Christian Pache and Adam Hazley. Now, uh, what I like about both these guys is they have the potential to hit for both power and speed. They are in the conversation for center field for both. Uh, teams that probably need a center fielder. So they are players that have the skill package at, that their need requ- that their team requires. Um, and yes, they, you know, they have their warts. Um, Pache has struck out entirely too much uh, and is still projected to strike out too much. Uh, his quality of contact hasn't been amazing. Um, but I do think he's the kind of player that could barrel just 5% and still strike out 20% of the time and still get an everyday job and end up with something like a 240 batting average and 15 homers and 15 steals, you know, uh, because his defense is that good. Um, so it's it's not uh, the most exciting thing where like, oh, I identified like a change in Pache's swing or like, you know, oh, I know he's going to be a good hitter. I don't I don't necessarily think he's going to be a good hitter. But, um, you know, I think the teams often use defensive first guys in center field while they're cheap, uh, you know, and Darian Ciarte, you know, early on when his defense was good, um, you know, they uh, he was useful. So I think that he could fulfill that sort of end Inciarte type role. Uh, for the Braves and uh, and be useful in, in my league and Hazley's uh, you know the same thing but a totally different package where um, you know he isn't as good of a defender as Pache but he's probably a better hitter uh, and for his career uh, he's hasn't really shown uh, the barrel rate that he uh, showed I, I've seen some minor league uh, barrel rates on him and uh, I still think that there's an opportunity there. For a guy to hit maybe 250, 15 homers, 15 steals, but in a kind of completely different way of getting there. <laughs> so uh, and in both cases, uh, what I really was looking for was opportunity and uh, the chance that their skill set fits that opportunity. And I think 
Uh, right now, I would say that neither team has a good starting center fielder. Wouldn't you agree? That seems fair, and I think there's even a greater need in Philly to figure out who that is. I think Atlanta can be more cautious with Pache if they want to, and they could also bundle him as part of a trade because there's plenty of teams that would want his defense alone in center field. And I think that for a young center fielder, especially on a team that has other guys that can hit, that describes Atlanta's situation, I think, really well, they're willing to make that sacrifice. They're willing to hit him in the bottom third of the order for a couple of seasons to see if he can figure it out. And I think that's what led me to Leody Tavares on the other side. I wasn't excited about Leody Tavares going in to 2021. I thought there were reasons to be skeptical. I, I think the speed he's showing us to this point in his big league career, 18 for 19 as a base dealer now in 82 games, that should get you really excited. There's still a lot of swing and miss, but for a guy with that much speed, he's showing the ability to hit the ball hard. I mean, 17 home runs at AAA in 87 games. I know it wasn't a great year in terms of, of WRC plus in the PCL from him. It was just a 98, so kind of a league average performance. But he's a 22 year old. Like, I, I don't, I don't think you have to look at what Tavares did last year and, and come away entirely dis- disappointed in that. I think with all the changes in Texas, the supporting cast is better. His chances of of leading off in the short term are much lower than they would have been without additions like Marcus Simeon and Corey Seager, uh, just because they're. They're going to put the best possible combination together. They're not just going to put a guy up top to maximize his playing time if they have some aspirations of making a run maybe at a wild card. But we need cheap speed. We like guys that can do it with other things. Tavares ticks a lot of those boxes. Not quite the defender that Pache is because very few players are, but he's also an above-average defender at a position of need for the Rangers. So I'm still in on Tavares as one of those guys that people liked a lot more a year ago. And he still, to me, has a good path this year to make an impact. Yeah, he's interesting. Uh, the one thing that makes me uh, nervous is that Adolis Garcia, uh, by outs above average, was a plus 11 uh, outfielder. So uh, it's possible that Adolis Garcia is the plan in center field right now. Um, we know he has a cannon for an arm, but he actually runs uh, decent routes as well, uh, according to outs above average. Um the nice thing about the Rangers, though, is there's there's a fair amount of opportunity, I think, in that sort of outfield DH group. Uh, Cole Calhoun, uh, you know, could regress, be done, be hurt. Uh, you know, all the things that happen to kind of a player of his age and caliber. Nick Solak uh, is right now the, the the front runner in left field, according to fan graphs. Um, I think he needs to establish himself as better than he has been. And then uh, Willie Calhoun is also listed uh, at top of the DH chart, um, and uh, I think he needs to he needs to do better than he has in order to kind of establish himself. So you have three guys there um, that uh, that need to establish themselves, and even if all three of those guys play, uh, Tavares might make the team. I have a, another Hazley-type player, a guy that's a little older, who's gone through the upper levels of the minor leagues and really kind of held his own everywhere he's played so far. Taylor Trammell. I would say mm. because the Mariners' outfield is more crowded than the Phillies' outfield, it takes more going his way. But Taylor Trammell has always done a great job controlling the strike zone. Strikeouts until he got to the big leagues really weren't a major issue. I know when he first got the double A, there was a little bit of a jump, but... I still don't think that's a, a long-term concern about a, a lack of, of hit tool. I know the the grade on his hit tool is actually a 40-45, according to fan graphs, but I just I like the way that he's always been able to take walks. He's showing power. 
He's been efficient as a base dealer in some of the upper levels of the minor leagues as well. We've, we've talked about that gap between AAA and the big leagues being really wide. I mean, a 22.9% K rate with Tacoma last season, 42.1% during his time in the big leagues. And I think it was even heavier at the beginning of the year when he got that opportunity. I think there was some improvement as the season went along. So I know we're, we're talking about a crowded situation depending on who's all healthy. You know, obviously Kelnick is up. Julio Rodriguez is coming. You know, Kyle Lewis, if he's healthy, has a spot. Mitch Hanniger is going to play a lot. They still have Jake Fraley around too. Uh, this is another one of those teams, though. If if Taylor Trammell can find a role, I think he can exceed expectations. Yeah, I wonder if a trade will matter. Um, it seems to me, I mean, like we know uh, his general manager likes to make trades. Yeah, if you had to, if you had to bank on a, a depth chart being changed by a trade, either the player himself or someone blocking that player, Seattle's a good place to wish cast that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think, uh, you know, if somebody else uh, sees him as more of a center fielder um, than they do with uh, Lewis and Kelnick uh, and Trammell, I think, and in Fraley, uh, the Mariners have four guys um, and they may not have a single kind of every down back kind of center fielder, right? Um, so it's uh, it'd be interesting. I think maybe Trammell's defense is the best of the four i think that's kind of the problem with seattle's core like if you're gonna pick nits in their great core of young outfielders like it's not necessarily who's at least from the guys we've seen so far there's not a clear cut this guy's easily a defensive center fielder in the big leagues yeah so so that i mean that might uh that might mean that he does the that weird thing where like you know somebody gets sent down and Trammell keeps sta- stays on the team because he can actually play. He can actually come in as a defensive replacement in center field. Yeah, but uh, definitely a good profile. And uh, DH there, I-, I think, could be a floating spot. I think, unfortunately, with Kyle Lewis, there's just there's so many recurring issues with his knees that it's it's difficult to pencil him in for more that. than a partial season. Uh, yeah, or or that, that's that was my thinking too with Atlanta. Like, if anybody's yelling at the radio that like. Uh, Ronald Acuna Jr. is the starting center fielder there. Uh, I just, I in my mind, I, I kind of pencil him into a corner at this point, just coming off of that injury, uh, you know, at least for the, the first half of the season, I would want, um, I'd want to kind of keep the pressure off him in center field. And you'd think that the Mariners might want to do something like that with Kyle Lewis. So, you know, with Intermel and Pache's case, I think there's something similar where, like, they might make the team uh, and be useful uh, part-time players, fourth outfielders, defensive replacements. If you're going to trade one of these outfielders, isn't Mitch Hanniger the one that gets traded most likely? Yeah, except that, I mean, he's the best right now offensively. And, uh, you know, with the signing of Robbie Ray uh, and the the way that they've kind of improved, you know, I just finished seeing is uh, John Bois' um, supercut of the the Seattle Mariners history. Oh, I haven't seen that. Oh my God. It's, it's tough. Cause it's like a three hour and 40 minute watch. I mean, it, it's really <laughs> oh, everything about the, history of the Mariners. It's great. It's so funny. Um, and, uh, I don't think that until I watched, I mean, I, you know, you know, Mariners, it's been rough. Uh, when you watch it, you're like, wow, it has been really rough. <laughs> <laughs> and they do like the, uh, the games over 500 like they they kind of do like a win chart for for every year and that's like the kind of the basic visual you get 
um, as the movie continues. And like, there's so much red on this chart that, you know, I, I see the Mariners as uh, trying to compete in the short term. I think they're trying to bid to win now. Um, so uh, what was the what was the beginning of that conversation? Would they trade? If they're going to trade somebody, would it be Mitch Haneker? Yeah, but only if it only if it fixed something for them defensively. And I think offensively, they they really need him. I mean, who else on this team is is right now like a threat? Kyle Lewis when he's healthy, maybe Jared Kelnick could be. I guess you could say maybe Ty France. Yeah, I mean that's your three four hitters, France Haniger, and it's it's not good enough yet. So if you trade Haniger, you're trading your best hitter. You're definitely expecting Kelnick to continue building on what he was doing at the end of last year. And well, yeah, I, I could talk myself into them getting better. I'm just saying I don't. In the context of them trying to get better, trading Mitch Haniger is a rebuild move. Yeah, well, it it just depends on how they want to handle the playing time with the younger options, and and maybe they wait and see how things play out in spring training, see how health. Is a factor in this conversation too. I mean, Hanniger's injury history, Kyle Lewis's injury history, could make this a moot point pretty quickly. There could be plenty of of playing time for Kelnick, Rodriguez, and Trammell if Lewis and Hanniger are both down mm-hmm. with injuries. Because Fraley, Fraley to me is more of like a good bench outfielder. He's not a guy you want to put out there for six hundred plate appearances, even though the, the tools are interesting and always been somewhat interesting. If he got, if he made a little more contact, he could be Robbie Grossman. Oh, that's a that's a fun positive spin on Jake Fraley that I had not previously thought of. So uh, thank similar. you, thank you for the, the Griffin Canning question, Casey, because that just yeah. sent us down the rabbit hole of, of players that have been Whole forgotten episode. about. <laughs> yeah, like three quarters of an episode. Uh, <laughs> but that's the thing about questions. Good questions lead to you know us thinking about random stuff. So always good. Uh, and again, if you comment on YouTube, defeat the algorithm. That's good for us, too. So thanks for sending that question in on YouTube. I got another question here that did come in from YouTube. This one came from Omar. Thoughts on Josh Donaldson's 2022 outlook. He had the best he had the best ball outcomes of his career and seemed to get unlucky. Now, I think just as a, a blanket sort of assessment, Donaldson is hitting that point in his career where he can do really well in terms of quality of contact and not necessarily reap all the benefits of that because of the uh, aforementioned cranky calf, among other things. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I kind of figure he'll be good, but he won't play that much. <laughs> you know? like, they're already doing that thing where they kind of rested him. Uh, they rested him just randomly, kind of load management type stuff, right? So... I I I I like him, and I have shares in, in a lot of places. Um, but um, weekly leagues, he's going to kind of steal from you a little bit without you knowing. You know, like look yeah. at look at this 136. Like even his projection, he could hit it. 136 games, 570 plate appearances. He will be valuable to his team if he's healthy in the playoffs. He could actually drive this team uh, if they made the playoffs. He could drive this team to 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 some interesting outcomes. However, your fantasy team with 570 plate appearances means that like, you're just going to miss a game from every week, every week. That's definitely the concern. That's why you're getting a big discount. I think the follow-up question is if he's going around pick 200, even in leagues that are, you know, weekly or with twice weekly moves, is that enough of a discount where you say, 
I'll take on that risk. I'll, I'll deal with having to you know shuttle him in and out of the lineup on Fridays a few times when when the calf starts barking or when something else comes up because the quality of contact was great. I mean, 17.4%, it's a career-high barrel rate for him, at least as long as we've had barrel rates available in Donaldson's career. 52.7% hard hit rate, not a surprise to see that with the barrel rate where it was, still not striking out that much and still drawing walks. So it, there, there doesn't appear to be much skills erosion here, if any, but it's just physical erosion of cumulative wear and tear. I took him a 229. Yeah, see, there's a there's a spot where it makes sense. Yeah, and I and I figure uh, I've got him and Frank Schwindel uh, for like util and corner, and uh, there'll probably be some weekends where I say, "Ooh, ooh, what do I do here? <laughs> is Donaldson going to sit this weekend?" Uh, and it'll make it rough. But uh, there is a lot there in terms of uh, power and um, and contact. Honestly, it's a, to get that combination of power and batting average is rare. Got an email from one of our YouTube viewers. Babic wants to know uh, two questions, actually. They're in a, a keeper league. It's five by five, head-to-head categories, and they have to hold a minimum of five players, sign to one to three-year deals, or franchise them. Looking at guys like Tyler O'Neill, Cedric Mullins, Mike Trout, Mookie Betts, all will be available for 2022. Thinking about where they're going to go price-wise, O'Neal in the $24 to $27 range, Mullins in the $28 to $32 range, Trout in the $35 to $40 range, and Betts in the $33 to $38 range. Just for context, he had uh, Betts at $42 last year, so ended up throwing him back. Which of those four at those ranges is the best bang for the buck between O'Neal, Mullins, Trout, and Betts, with Trout costing the most, Betts being a bit less, Mullins a tick less than that, and O'Neal likely just a notch below Mullins. I had a snap answer to this one. I thought Mookie Betts kind of made the most sense. I think I'm probably fixated on that he was 42 a year ago and that you might get him for almost 10 less than that. If you get him at the mid-30s, that seems like a pretty big bargain. I'd rather pay the extra dollars and and have that extra floor. I think with Tyler O'Neill, my biggest concern, even though he does an extraordinary amount of damage when he makes contact, it is hard to live with a K rate that high and not be some sort of liability in batting average. So if we're talking even even an $8 difference to get up to bets from O'Neill, I think it's worth every single one of those dollars, especially when you account for the Dodgers lineup being better, Dodger Stadium being a better place to hit. You could probably talk me into Mullins at a similar price to O'Neill as a better option than Betts. And I'm not afraid of Mike Trout, but I think the gap between Betts and Trout is actually pretty small right now. And Betts seems like he's right in that sweet spot. Yeah, I have Betts and Trout pretty the same. So if if, if Trout is going to go for, you know, more than Betts, you know, I think I'll take Betts there. Um, I, I knew that I, I know that O'Neill uh, was number one in baseball in the expected extra base hits um, metric that was uh, more predictive than barrels. Uh, so I find that interesting, but it does it does go to our conversation that has been throughout this this episode of that that uh, relationship between making contact and making powerful contact. You know, um, O'Neill is sort of just an exaggerated version of of Bobby Bradley. You know, <laughs> just can steal bases. Uh, <clears throat> uh, I, and uh, and so I I gravitate towards the all around players that do make. Uh, contact and may not make as as powerful contact. Um, why not Mullins though? Why not Mullins? 
I don't have a strong argument against him. I I think the the biggest thing I'd be worried about with Mullins, and this is even without the adjustment to the offense, if you you're moving the fences back a bit in in left field, when I look at run production a year ago from Mullins, that's the category that I just don't know if that's going to change much. Mm. Adley Rutschman will be up, sure, but how much more help are they going to have? RBI, 91 runs. Yeah, and that was in a massive season he where like he did a million day. things right and played every day. So yeah. I think your counting stats could, he could be just as good as he was last year and the counting stats could be same or even slightly worse as a possibility just because of things that are out of his control. So I think that is my reservation with Mullins when I have an opportunity to spend a little more and get someone like Betts where that's not a question at all. Betts had 58 RBI last year, but he also had 125 fewer plate appearances. Yeah, missed a lot of time. Also a down year. So you'd be buying a star on a bounce back. And it's a 29-year-old bounce back, not a 32-year-old bounce back. In fact, uh, that's an interesting thing, is that Betts is only two years older than Mullins. This is uh, this is the same kind of conversation they were having on the, the Fantasy Football podcast this morning when it was revealed that Cooper Cup is older than Allen Robinson. Wow. Which, if you follow football, you're like, wait, what? It's, like, <laughs> it's only two months, but it, it, is, uh, it is true. The yeah, so the, the takeaway for me is bets. I, I think that's the the sweet spot for skills value. You're not overpaying. I think he could still be a forty dollar guy. I think that's still in there skills wise. If I was a rebuilding squad, this sounds like a keeper league. You know, he's saying these things, these players will be available. If I was uh, trending towards rebuilding or like trying to build a squad as opposed to like win next year, then I might actually take Tyler O'Neill. Because he'll be the cheapest of the group, and he's a, the best age range to to price to possible outcomes. I mean, you might get the guy who hits two fifty and goes thirty thirty next year, you know, and and uh, get him for ten dollars less than everybody else is getting their their players. So that's the only the only way I think that I would take Tyler O'Neill over over the rest of the guys. Otherwise, uh, I'm settling into a kind of a Betts Mullins debate, and I. I think uh, you convinced me I'd take bets. I think auction nomination order could be a factor. Like if, if all four of these players are still in the queue and you know, your turn comes up, you might say, let's see if I can get O'Neal for that low-end price. And if you get him at 25, you're, you're just happy with that. But I I think if you throw him early, I think he goes for more. I think if he's the last one... I throw one, Trout first. I think you throw Trout first. I think you could throw O'Neal second. Because I, I think the desper- like the desperation on whoever's last of that group could make that player the second most expensive of the group, even if they are not the second best player by, by projection of the bunch. Yeah, I, I, but I think the Mullins hype will make him go pretty high. I might leave Mullins for last uh, to, to make sure that the, the, the Sharks are in the water on that one. Throw Trout first just to see where maybe the ceiling is on this group. Like what? What if he goes to forty-two? Wow, then maybe I'm gonna shift gears and do Tyler O'Neill. You know, right? Because bets might not be that far off of Trout. I would assume most of the room right. will look at Trout's number and within two bucks have bets. Right. right so there. if Trout goes to forty-two, then you kind of think, oh man, bets is gonna cost me forty. Uh, let me throw Tyler O'Neill now because maybe I'd rather have Tyler O'Neill for twenty-five than bets for forty. 
you know. But then if bets, if O'Neill runs into the 30s and you're not comfortable with that, then you know, well, okay, at, at least, least I have bets and Mullins left to. I, I got a shot at the other two, and I'm probably paying less than somebody else paid for Trout. Yeah. Just a few ways I think to that's think about the, it. That's an interesting thing. You know, I, I don't agree. You know, I don't agree. There's some uh, philosophies out there that you should only throw players you want. I don't no. think that's necessarily true. I think you should only throw players that give you information. Yeah. So they tell you about the top of a or the bottom of a of a uh, of a of a position, or they tell you about how much people will spend on the you know the first rounders or what the, what the first round premium is, or they will tell you what the save the steals premium is. So um, in this case, I think I would throw Trout to kind of see where the ceiling is. Have a reason for every player you nominate, but you don't have to nominate only players that you intend to end up with because. People, maybe they'll take advantage of that. They'll pick up on it. You'll be paying extra. That's just the way it's going to go. You're going to get plus one to death at the high end of the pool. Oh, especially. I always get plus one to death in the low end on my dollar pitchers. Oh, it kills me. In fact, I've started budgeting $2 for late game pitchers because I just know that there are guys out there in the room that'll, oh, Eno wants this pitcher for a dollar. Nope. You should never nominate a pitcher that you actually like for a dollar. I know. Yeah, I can't. You specifically. I did start nominating pitchers I didn't want for a dollar and did get the room to take them off my hands for two. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you just, just you know, be the roadrunner. Don't be Wiley you. Coyote. <laughs> and now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not preach you and your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Uh, Babak had another part of this email that I thought was interesting and probably a little, a little more, uh, you know, broadly interesting to people out there listening. In your opinion, which of the following cheap leadoff hitters will still have their job as a leadoff hitter over the course of 2022? Which of these guys do you prefer? Uh, I kind of have them in three groups. I have Tommy Edmond by ADP, who's kind of off on his own. He's inside the top 100. Miles Straw, Akil Badu, Colton Wong, and Enrique Hernandez, all kind of in the 130 to 190 or so range. And then there's Josh Rojas, Lane Thomas, Raimel Tapia, and J.P. Crawford. And I grouped them together because I think they they have different things that make them interesting. Edmund goes the earliest because even if he loses his job as the leadoff hitter, he's probably not losing enough playing time to become irrelevant in a 12-team mixed league. Right? Mm-hmm. The only way that happens is if he gets hurt. Even if he falls in the batting order, he's still going to play a lot because he can play second. He played second base really well last year. They can put him in the outfield if they need to play him a couple other spots. So Edmund just has like the safest playing time floor overall, even if he might be just as likely to lose his hold on the leadoff spot as some of the other players that are in this email. I think out of Straw, Badu, Wong, and Kike, I actually think 
Wong and Kike are safer to stay in prominent spots in their respective lineups, just based on how those teams are built. Badu, I think... Kike could be anywhere. It, I mean, he has he has lineup risk and some playing time risk just because of the lack of experience. So I think you have to account for that, even though you, you get some possible growth potential. What he did last year, as we've said, was amazing for the time off that he had uh, before doing it. Miles Straw, who we've talked a lot about on this show, I think because of the previously mentioned the Guardians are cheap mindset, I think he's more like Tommy Edmond and Wong and Kike in terms of overall playing time security, but I think he's less safe in the leadoff role than Wong and Kike are because of his own limited skills. He's got the second best projected OBP on the team by Steamer, at least. Uh, yeah. Stephen Kwan might make him third, but who else is going to take that from him? Even if I go down the OBP list, unless they make Jose Ramirez lead off, but I, I don't think that's ideal. So then you go down the list. Josh Naylor is going to be, he's protected for 10 points less OBP. Also would be a weird ass. You'd be a you know, weird lead off hitter. Yeah. Fran Mill Reyes is not going to be the lead off hitter. Nolan Jones, Harold Ramirez is, is gone. I think so. Ahmed Rosario with a 318. Is he going to take his job? I'm still just know. worried that Miles Straw is not a good big league hitter, and yeah. and that that lowers the OBP enough to where he loses his hold on the role. I think if he's in baseball, he's the on um, he's their leadoff hitter. You know what I mean? Like not Gross. in baseball. Like if he's if he's like a starting level player in baseball, then he's their leadoff hitter, which means that his risk is is what lineup risk, like Badu, right? Yeah, I think it's more lineup risk than playing time risk for sure. Yeah. So, I would say of that group, Badu's the most risky. Hernandez and Wong are kind of even for me in terms of how likely they are to just stay atop lineups. I guess I like Kike a little better because I think the Red Sox offense is better than the Brewers offense. So, that could be a, a separator there. From the last group... Wong has the fourth best projected OBP in Milwaukee's lineup. But the guys that are projected to be better... Kane, super injured... Part-time goal. player part-time player and then Urias not necessarily a leadoff guy not necessarily not a leadoff guy but a little more punch so you probably want him I closer to right. the and then Yelich and Yelich but Yelich I don't think you want him leading off so no yeah okay I I, I agree Wong uh and then the, I think Boston Kike I don't know Kike's not that good of a player I, every time I say that I look at the numbers and I'm like he's better than I realized He's, he's better than I remembered. The sixth best projected OBP, seventh best projected OBP in Boston. Bogarts, Verdugo, Devers, Martinez, Cassis has a better projected OBP, and Plawecki has a better projected OBP. Hmm. Uh, I think that says more about their offense as a whole than it does about Hernandez's shortcomings, though. Yeah, but I think you could you could lead off Verdugo pretty easily. You could. So that's the he's uh, Verdugo's easily the biggest threat to Kike having the leadoff job. I'll say my my idea of the safest are actually Wong and Straw in that group. I'm gonna go Wong, Kike, Straw, Badu out of the second group. Out of the last group, I think these guys all have could lose their job risk yeah. across the board. Rolas Thomas, Tapia, JP Crawford. 
Crawford, because of his defense, is just he's going to play. But he'd be a lot more useful as a he, he's mostly useful as a collector of plate appearances, and so therefore his value is super tied into being like if Lane Thomas makes the Nationals but isn't leadoff, he's still got some interesting facets to his you know his skill set. But if J.P. Crawford is the eighth hitter for the Mariners, he becomes a lot less interesting. Because yeah. he's, now he's not even going to give you a lot of plate appearances, and he's still going to hit 275 with like eight homers and four steals. Who do you think is the biggest threat to Crawford as the replacement in the leadoff role in Seattle, though? Because I think if I'm counting correctly, J.P. Crawford let off 108 times. I'm looking at a, a player page chart at Rotowire that has him at leadoff 59 times against righties and 49 times against lefties. So uh, Crawford has the third best projected OBP behind Ty France and Julio Rodriguez. Uh, I doubt Julio Rodriguez is going to just you know make the major leagues, and I don't think Ty France is a leadoff hitter, uh, especially since we just made him the, the three or four hitter, right? Toro is right there, though. Adam Frazier? Like, good Adam Frazier could be a threat to Crawford, I guess. Fraley, Toro, and Crawford have basically the same projected OBP. Hmm. Yeah. I, I, and then Kelnick, a Kelnick, I think a Kelnick breakout, you might actually, you might put him one or two in the lineup, right? Yeah. Crawford definitely has some bottom third of the order potential, even though job security relative to the rest of the group, just playing time wise might actually be the safest, even though he's drafted the latest. Yeah. Yeah. I think he's actually pretty safe. I think he's, yeah. But he's the least exciting hitter probably of the entire group. But, you know, he does what he does, and uh, this is a team, you know, they'll reward him. He's like, he's like one of their veterans now, you know? So, you know, just stick him in there. And, and, and you, like, you're not going to stick uh, Kalnick uh, or Kyle Lewis coming off of injury uh, in the two or three spots or in the one spot, right? Because you, you kind of want to take pressure off of him. So Kalnick, I think, could be up gonna somewhere be in that mix. Crawford, Toro, France, or Crawford, France, Hanniger. You know, that's like you could almost write it in stone, I feel like. Josh Rojas for 2022. What's your, your no overall takeaway on him? Like, I haven't drafted him anywhere yet. I haven't even felt like it was Rojas versus someone I did take any spots. It's not that he's out of bounds price wise. He's not even a top 200 guy by ADP right now. But my auction calculator says he's below replacement. So even when he does go, he's he's going like he was going in places where I had players that still were ten dollars on the table. Mm. You know what I mean? So I just couldn't I couldn't do it. He went in round seventeen. I took Frank Schwindel that round. I was like, and then I took Tommy Pham. The, both those guys I had valued at ten dollars, and I had Josh Rojas at zero. So uh, he he's also projected to have the eighth best OBP in Arizona next year. I mean, it almost, I don't even have to read the names off because once you're eighth, you're a, you're a risk. You know what I mean? He's predicted yeah. to have the same OBP as Josh Van Meter, you know? Like, yeah, I'm just kind of, I think I'm just out on Rojas because I don't have a reason to be in. Yeah, I could, I couldn't ever figure it out from the beginning other than opportunity. Um, you know, he does, I guess, like decent plate discipline, but not great contact skills or at least not demonstrated great strikeout rate yet. And uh, the barrel rates are pretty boring. They're below average for for a starting position player. So I guess he steals bases and plays a lot of positions. 
I would probably take but, the but chance on James risk, Thomas right? like, instead. Yeah, how many beats is he going to steal if he's a backup player? I mean, you get that. You get the glue. You get second, short, outfield. You could pick up third. You had 14 games there in 2021. So you just get a lot more position flexibility than you do from the other players in this group. But if you told me he's playing four times a week in 2022 by the end of the season and when he plays, he's not even leading off, I wouldn't fight back on that at all. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't. I don't. Need, I don't mean to be pessimistic on a guy that a lot of people like. I mean, there's obviously still uh, an opportunity there because the Diamondbacks are not a very good team, you know. And uh, and I guess you would say like third base is available. Yeah, that that could be his spot. That could just be his. I would even say that shortstop might become available because Nick Ahmed is a is a steady Eddie that might get traded, um, and also is steadily boring and he could get replaced but I don't think Rojas is going to be the guy to replace him it's not ideal uh, but yeah Nick Ahmed backup option for the Angels if they don't get what they want elsewhere that could that could be a thing everyone's going to the Angels now but it doesn't really help Rojas that much because Rojas is battling like Van Meter and I don't think he's going to play short Geraldo Perdomo could come up and play shortstop and they could just use him at that spot I mean that just I, I think Rojas is is a bridge player for them until they they solve those other positions that he can play. So maybe he plays more than I expect because of where those younger players are, but I I don't see enough to be excited about him. Thanks a lot for that question, Babic. Let's go to this question from Robert. That's a question about Dylan Cease. How are you guys feeling about Dylan Cease this year? Projections show a great K rate, and Eno Stuff Plus has him at 113, but he seems to have control issues. Steamer has him at a 9.5% walk rate. Zips has him at 10.9, and Location Plus has him at 97.2. Seems like a pitcher on the cusp of going to the next level, but looking at underlying numbers to see if he can get his control any better or if his control can get better with a different pitch mix. Thanks for all the work you guys do on the pod. I, I keep wondering if Dylan Cease is actually a little underpriced relative to someone that I really like in Freddie Peralta. That's the, that's the problem I've been running into every time I've looked at better stuff plus than Freddie Peralta saying something like like looking at how they each did it last year and seeing the pretty significant difference in the end of season numbers that's the underlying skills that look actually more similar than I expected based on their gap in ADP I will say this though that location plus uh is the worst uh, location like I have him in my top 40 right now Dylan Cease I'm, I'm working on my ranks and uh, I have him basically 35 ahead of Blake Snell uh, because Blake Snell is the only other guy who has a command pl- uh, location plus that bad um, and the the thing is yes location plus isn't as sticky year to year but um, uh, it is stickier uh, in the middle. So, like, uh, if Dylan Cease had thrown, you know, like five games last year and had a location plus of like 93, I'd be like, well, you know, how much can I trust that? Uh, it's it's on the extremes, and on the extremes is where location plus is less predictable. It's predictive. So, in the middle, from say 97, 95 to you know 105, 110. Those it actually has more predictive quality year to year. So and it fits with the scouting port. Honestly, he has bad command. So him and, B- and Blake Snell, I think, um, kind of belong together in a way because um, 
I see Cease having similar ups and downs in his career because they both have excellent stuff and they both have really poor command. So I can't push Cease. Uh, for example, Freddy Peralta, 98.6 uh, command plus, and uh, Shohei Otani, 97.7. Those are the only other two guys uh, in my top 40 uh, with below average location plus. And uh, I don't know. What do you like? There's some risk there, right? But Freddie Peralta is still better than him at command. I think it's tough. I, I because if it, if Dylan sees is an undervalued, there's a good chance that Freddie Peralta is a little overvalued right now. Doesn't mean mm. that these are bad pitchers. Just means that people are overcorrecting based on results that are probably almost impossible to sustain, barring further improvement. I think I probably have Peralta and Otani lower than most people because as pitchers, as a pitcher for Otani and Freddie Peralta, I have them twenty and twenty-one right now. That's probably lower than the than the group, huh? I think that's lower than the group does. I think Peralta, I want to say, is like 15th by ADP. Let me take a look at the pitcher list here. Not the pitcher list, like our friend's pitcher list, but mm-hmm. uh, he's 19th when you have closers in. So you take out Hader Hendricks and Rysel. 16th among starters in ADP based on last 10 days or so for for Freddie. Yeah, I think the for me it's the uh, for me it's the it's the the command that's a risk seems fair to me at this point uh i think if i had a, a more stable one two or at least a stable first starter i'm not against cease where he goes but i would be careful about expecting one more step if he keeps those skills exactly where they have been i have Cease really close to lance lynn and like they're not at all the same pitcher not even close to the same mm-hmm. pitcher so you know i think like who I picked first would make a big difference about whether I wanted Lynn or Cease there. Thanks a lot for that question, Robert. Got one here from Max. It is a question about Marcus Stroman. Max is getting into cut line leagues. Those are 10 team leagues with an overall prize, the best ball format. You only make pickups twice in season, once in April, once in June, by the way. So if you end up playing that, it's a a bit of a different format, but another good way to add a league without adding a lot of in-season work. Uh, innings pitched are very important in that format. So Max wants to know, why doesn't Marcus Stroman pitch deeper into games? He's got a handful of good pitches. He gets ground balls. And usually I think of these as a recipe for high innings per start. But it was not in Stroman's case last year. Puzzled Max in San Francisco. I actually think that uh, a, a few starts kind of mess things up. He had, uh, a, I think he had a game that was delayed in the middle. Um, like a, a rain delay game that he didn't come back in. So he has a, a three-inning start. I think that might be the rain delay one. Um, then he has uh, one that he just went point one and faced two batters. So I don't, you know, there was some rain, some delayed games, some injury maybe coming out of a game. Um, uh, I don't know why he has those. But if you take those out, and uh, I know that's like he was good in the games he was good. <laughs> the most fun way to use stats. <laughs> right. But if you just take out the point one uh, and the, the one and the three, like uh, I see a lot of sixes. Uh, let's just take uh, uh, from uh, July onward where he doesn't have any of those ones or point ones. He had... 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 starts. And out of those 16 starts, he went 6 in 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. I don't know. Seems about, seems about right for today's game. 
seems fine to me. I don't think he's that much of a risk for coming out of games early. I think he's actually just undervalued. I think he's undervalued because he doesn't miss a ton of bats. And mm -hmm. the skills that he has, inducing a lot of ground balls, being efficient, I think that's it's all stuff that he consistently does. You know, right? And there's no control issue to speak of. So uh, I'm in on Strowman, even and in non-cut line situations, because he's going outside the top 150 overall. And I actually do think there is some hidden upside in Marcus Strowman. Um, I'm interested to see what you know a new organization, new pitching coach um, uh, does with him because um, he uh, he could go more slider heavy um, and uh, and do. Uh, do like basically a slider cutter where, you know, if he did cutter slider, if he became a little bit more like you Darvish, hmm. um, I think he could actually, uh, and use the sinker a little bit less. I think he could actually strike more people out. So um, there's always a little bit of a upside there for the strikeouts, but I think just generally uh, he's, a, he's a solid guy. I mean, you know, it's a solid, you know, large pitch mix, athletic, uh, on the field in terms of like fielding position, he's going to actually give himself value fielding his position. Um, I, I, in the, I hate to keep, keep coming back to this, but I took him as my third starting pitcher in the 12th round. And he went, uh, ahead of guys like Jordan Montgomery and behind guys like Clayton Kershaw, uh, and Sonny Gray. Yeah. I mean, I, I prefer, Great to Stroman if you give me the choice, but I think that's a pretty good approximation of expectations. More K's from Sonny Gray, but probably more stable ratios from Stroman, especially landing in, in a pitcher-friendly environment with the Cubs. I mean, I love Tanner Houck, but Tanner Houck was the guy taken right after him. I don't know, man. They're, they're oh. very different. Tanner Houck could put 60 innings up in the big leagues this year. Tanner Houck is actually, to me, more of a reason not to pay full freight on Dylan Cease. Interesting. Because you can, I think, I think how I'm, because I'm more bullish Dylan on the Cease innings than you are. has a fair amount of risk in his profile. And so you're talking like there are some, yeah, because Tanner Houck, right around Tanner Houck, uh, Shane Baz went, um, and Tariq Skubal went, uh, and Logan Gilbert, you know, those are all in that sort of three round uh, bit there. So why pay Cease, uh, why pay, all, uh, you know, a lot for Cease when, you can have these young pitchers that you're excited about that have their own risk, uh, but could go later and have similar upsides. Yeah. One way to think about it, if you if you don't like the cease profile where he is going right now, you can find similar pitchers available later, take on a little injury, not injury risk necessarily, but innings risk, and you may end up coming up with a, a guy that is going 100 picks earlier next year in some of those cases. We'll get to a few more of those guys during pitcher week. I got a sandwich-related question before we go. This comes from another Robert. We all know about replacement-level players, but what about replacement-level condiments and sandwich toppings? As a self-professed sandwich guy, which Eno's kid has also labeled him as a sandwich guy, Eno must have some war-level ranking for his sandwich toppings and condiments. If I want to make the ultimate war witch, I need to know Eno's rankings. So mm. what's at the top? I feel like you're more of the this is what I have in the fridge and these things will taste good together. So you kind of choose based on using leftovers, which is a really smart way to use your leftovers <laughs> and to stumble into to new flavors. It's also a way to get super embarrassed by, uh, there's a guy out there at Beerinator. Beerinator. Uh, 
Oh my God, his sandwiches. He like bakes his own bread, uh, you know, like smokes meat, he, like made his own jardinera, like, you know, just like ridiculous stuff where I'm like, ah, I took this meat and put some jelly on it. Uh, but anyway, oh, I like how you went with the Dr. Strangelove voice there. <laughs> Is that who you become when you're making sandwiches? Mm, yeah, maybe not. Maybe. Uh, the, I will say the easiest thing for me to answer in that question is my replacement level sandwich, which is uh, I almost always have cinnamon raisin bagels around. And so my replacement level sandwich, which I have a lot more than I would admit to uh, on social media because everyone wants to shame me about uh, cinnamon raisin bagel usage, is cinnamon raisin bagel, Swiss cheese, and salami. Mm. Bam. So, but I think that replacement level is probably around six out of 10 in my rating system. Um, if I rate something five out of 10, I don't want to eat it again. So that makes it bad, which, you know, I know, I know, but there's always rate inflation on stuff. Right. People, you need to have the scale. People give nice IPAs they hate, you know, three and a half stars. <laughs> it's among the reasons why at some point in the last year, I was like, I'm just done with untapped. I just don't, I don't need this anymore. <laughs> yeah. There's so many beers out now. I'm not going to repeat beers very often. My memory is not true. total crap. <laughs> if I've never heard of the beer name before, I haven't had it. That's that's my new system. Right. And if I don't hate it, it's good. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And if I if it's really really good and I want to take some home, then I'll remember that as like a, a top of the scale or near top of the scale. But usually I'm just like oh, I'll just get something else next time because people keep making great beer. I was thinking, you know, my my sandwich situation, salami also, salami is just like, it's good for a while, pre-packaged stuff that doesn't mm. get gross. So I think that's why I always have salami around too. Sourdough out here is, mm. San Francisco sourdough is a real thing, but there's, even at Safeway, there's a good loaf of sourdough for like five or six bucks that is that really good you bread. That Watson sourdough? Yeah. That's good bread. That if you good. live in a place where you're getting that as your, your default bread, you've you got a good bread game. That's the other thing the I always have. Yeah, I would say that that my other version of the of the the replacement level sandwiches is like sourdough with those ingredients. Yeah, it's just sourdough, salami, and Munster. It's Munster's the cheese we always have laying mm. around. So that's that's just my hurry sandwich. But the topping I really like on a sandwich is blackberry jelly. Mm-hmm. Man after my own heart. That is the good ingredient. You could have it on hand for PB&Js or whatever. You know, if you're just English muffin in the morning, you want something sweet on there. But if you're doing turkey, I think turkey or like even chicken, like if you do a chicken breast, you slice that up. Mm. Blackberry jelly just gives you a totally different flavor profile on the entire thing. I think for a more bland meat that's a little under seasoned, it can do a lot of the heavy lifting. You can do blackberry with jardinera, which Mm. also lasts a long time. Throw that on there with turkey. You got a great sandwich right there on pretty much any bread. When I get fancy, uh, I have a hot pepper bacon jam from Pepperidge Farm or something. Uh, Pepperidge Farm uh, remembers. Hot, hot bacon, hot bacon jelly. It's a little bit like your your jelly idea, but it has a little bit of spiciness to it and some bacon. Uh, I do the fried onions. Uh, Trader Joe's has them. Mm. Uh, Some other people have them, like the crispy fried onions. Uh, I like to throw those on. Uh, I like to make sure I have some pickled red onions around. Uh, so I just keep a jar of my own pickled red onions. Um, those are, and then I, my favorite sort of personal concoction that I've come up with over the years is sriracha honey mustard. But I, I just put that together. 
on the on the sandwich. I just squeeze all three of those things on the sandwich and 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 spread it together on the sandwich. But I like I like that topping. So somewhere in there was an answer. No, Trader Joe's is good for your your sandwich condiments. They have the, the sweet chili sauce, which mm. is really good on like stir fry. But you could also throw that into a sandwich if you need to. And then the I think their Carolina barbecue sauce is pretty good too. It's a little more of like a deep yellow Carolina gold. I think is what it's called, right? It's, it's a little tangy, but huh. um, I've also dumped that on a chicken sandwich before. And you take a pretty bland sandwich and and make it really interesting really fast. But I like the the crunchy onions thing. That's a great idea. Mm. It's about time to get a sandwich. Uh, if you got a question for a future episode, you can email us, ratesandbarrels at theathletic.com. You can leave us a comment under this video if you're watching us on YouTube, or even if you're not, you can just go to the YouTube page, click on the video, and leave us a comment there. Help us defeat the algorithm on Twitter. You can find Eno at Eno Saris. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. Be sure to barrel up on the like button if you are watching this video on YouTube. That is going to do it for this episode of Rates and Barrels. We are back with you on Thursday. Thanks for listening. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.